My guest today has been in several bands in the hardcore. I'm glad we're able to do this. I don't know how long I've been. Uh, we've been kind of going back and forth, and things have fallen through a few times. But you know that happens. That's actually yeah. Happened. I apologize. <laughs> hey, it happens. You're a busy guy. You got a couple pages to run. I'm sure you got a life. We're going to get into all that. Um, where are you yeah. today, actually? I'm in Kent, Ohio. In Kent, and that's where you live, right? Which is, I live in. Okay, so I live in Youngstown, Ohio, and then Kent. I've owned a business here since 2006. So I'm here in the day, and then I own a bar in Cleveland, too, so I'll be there. That's Everything is like 40 minutes away. Okay. So I drive to Ken, it's 40 minutes, so I drive 40 minutes to Cleveland usually after. Okay, it looks like, I think, on, on your on your uh, your Instagram post, it's, it, it usually shows you coming from Kent. Uh, my Actually, my eldest yeah. niece my eldest niece went to college up there. She's for punk rock scene. He runs a few Instagram pages, and he hawks merchandise uh, of his creation at the Outcast Mentality brand. We're going to talk about all things hardcore and punk, martial arts, being a digital creator, branding, and a ton more. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Samoan Rob to the Square Peg Podcast. Hey, thank you very much, man, for having me. I really appreciate it. graduated a few years ago. They're living, uh, actually, her, her boyfriend is in a, is in a band uh, called the Vums, uh, kind of a, I don't know what, what oh, we yeah. call them. Have you heard of them? I think I've heard of them before. Yeah, okay. that's cool. It's not a lot of music here anymore. Oh, like the DIY spots closed over the years. They don't look like I own a business in downtown and there's just not like venues anymore. Like back in the day, there was a lot, not so much anymore. Yeah. So I'm familiar. I was actually born in Columbus. My sister lives in Dayton. And, um, so the niece would, oh, yeah, that's what's up. Yeah. went to school yeah. in Kent and, um, like that my nephews go to school at Bowling Green. But so you, did you grow up in Ohio? I grew up in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is a half an hour from Youngstown. Okay. And then I started working at a tattoo shop in 99 in Youngstown. And then I pretty much was always in that scene or lived around there for like 20 years. Okay. Now, now I've never been to Youngstown, but I know it, it's got a reputation as being a kind of a hard scrabble. Um, yeah. Yeah, back in the day, it was the murder capital of America for years. When I worked there, it was like the one of the most deadly cities in America. Um, and I worked at a tattoo shop, real wild place. Um, it was cool. I mean, people didn't bother us, but you know, it's just how it was. I, I remember growing up and there was, um, and I don't, now one of the things I want to get to how, just for, for my reference, how old are you? 42. Okay. About kind of what I expected. Um, you know, when I was growing up, uh, in the, in the, mostly in the eighties, there was a congressman from, uh, from Youngstown named, uh, no, I'm drawing a blank. Oh, yeah, Jim Trafficking. Jim Trafficking. Thank you. Um, yeah. And he was. I mean, you want to talk about a character? Um, and he was, of course. Oh, yeah. I, I think he had been sheriff one time. He was very always rumored to be mobbed up. Uh, and and that was kind of he the went to prison for a while. Did he? You know, you're right. And there was an interesting uh, a photo of him when he took when they took his rug off, right? Yeah, yeah. Because he yeah he wore the wild toupee. Yeah, he went to prison for a while. There was also the main. The big time, like uh, Mahoney County Sheriff, which is from Youngstown, went to prison. A lot of pro- like another prosecutor went to prison. Yeah, up until not even that long ago, it was like still really connected to the mob. Yeah, um, you know, actually, now that yeah, I think real, of it, like uh, organized crime. Yeah, right. And, and and actually, one of my favorite boxers uh, uh, that I had for a couple of years is retired. Uh, Kelly Pavlik. I don't know if you know him. Oh yeah, Kelly Pavlik. Well, there's Boom Boom Mancini, of course. Right. Um, who's a legend. I, one of my friends is actually his, his nephew, and I got to meet him. He's a really cool dude. And then Kelly Pavlik I've met a couple of times, also a cool guy. Kelly yeah. Pavlik was also, when I was growing up, when we were young, because we're probably about the same age, he was like a tough guy. He'd go to bars and stuff and just smash people. 
Who, Kelly? He got in a lot of trouble back then. Yeah, because, you know, Sean, like you said, it's, you know, it's like it's a tough guy town. Yeah. So especially when I was growing up, it was like, if you weren't, you know, people, obviously people got murdered here. It was like the murder capital. But a lot of guys was just, who was a tough guy? Kelly Pavlik, legit, obviously. But he was a street tough guy, too. So, you know, he, yeah, he'd get in fights at bars all the time when I was growing up. And, um, yeah, then he kind of, you know, he won the championship and then kind of, you know, his life got all messed up. But Yeah, I, I knew about the problems. Up. I knew about some of the problems he had after he he beat Jermaine Taylor uh, and won the middleweight championship. Yeah. But, you know, I, I do want to, we're kind of on kind of where I wanted to go next. Uh, the the demographics, um, you, you know, you're, you're Samoan Rob. I'm going to assume you have at least some Samoan ancestry in you um yeah what what's the so growing up in pennsylvania and then kind of you can do a mishmash of all the kind of places you've lived in the the three places you will say that you frequent in ohio what what are the demographics like um kind of where you grew up and kind of maybe seg into you talked in a recent post also about getting into the hardcore scene about the mid 90s which i would assume is when you were a teenager right yes Okay, so so, so like, what kind of people did you grow up around? Well, I, okay, so how the Samoan thing goes, because people get confused by this sometimes. I was born in American Samoa. My aunt lived there. So what happened was my dad got a chick pregnant when she was like a teenager. They had to get me off the island, and my aunt lived there. So my aunt was like, hey, I have a sister in Pennsylvania that needs a kid. So that's how I got adopted when I was like maybe six to eight months. And that's how I ended up in Pennsylvania. So my parents were white. I'm, I'm 100% Samoan, but my adopted parents are just white people. You know, like my dad was German and my mom was Italian. Okay. So that's how I ended up in Pennsylvania. So then I was like the only Samoan guy, you know, growing up with white parents. You know, I listened to punk and hardcore, and I ended up meeting a bunch of guys. And, you know, we became friends and got in bands and that kind of stuff. Well, and that's when I really went to shows. When probably early to mid-'90s, I started going to punk and hardcore shows. Now – I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb. I you know I grew up right outside of Washington DC and it didn't even occur to me. I'm 50 years old. Uh it didn't occur to me till I was in my 20s really that DC had a major hardcore scene. And you know it kind of oh, makes yeah, sense I mean, yeah. Henry Rollins is from there and you know the bands that he was in um That's like classic stuff there. Minor Threat that kind of stuff. Right, right. And um I mean there were some other bands. I don't know Fugazi's not definitely definitely not punk rock, but I know they're kind of independent in their own right. Um the college music. It's like college rock stuff. <laughs> okay. And I, I had a friend that had, I had a friend named Wayne who, who was actually into this hardcore and he had a Fugazi sticker on the back of this car he had and we used to call the car Fugazi. But um <laughs> yeah, co- correct me if I'm wrong. Hard hardcore punk rock is pretty pretty white. I mean this the scene itself. There's yeah, not 100%. a lot of diversity, right? Um, I mean, yeah, not not that much. So there's more now, I guess. Like I said, it was a weird thing with me. I try to explain this to people because it's like, you know, my parents are white. I never thought I was anything different until I got older. You know, then you go to school and kids say racist stuff, but then they're not even right because they think you're black. But I wasn't black. I was Samoan. So there's always this weird thing in my life where I identified with my family who were white, but I wasn't white, you know. And then, like I said, I couldn't. So it was like there's no other Samoan people. Then I'm not black. I'm not Mexican. There's no, you know, so it was like there's always weird trying to fit in. And I think that's why hardcore and punk was more open-minded, even though it was mostly white people. It was, uh, you know, it's who I identified with, but it was also open-minded towards me being just some Samoan kid. Yeah, I... Um, there's no other Samoans around. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't imagine. I mean, the West Coast, obviously, I would imagine. Our, our actually, our our city manager here in Las Cruces, New Mexico, Ifo Pili, is uh, Samoan, and um, he played in the NFL. I interviewed him a couple years ago. Um, oh, that's sick. But of course, he's from. I mean, he grew up uh, the. He's a member of the Church of Latter Day Saints, and and of course they have a big mission in Samoan. He grew up in in, in Utah and everything. But yeah, definitely not a lot of Samoans uh, in Ohio, I imagine. No. But um, I, I grew up there was not one in Ohio. I don't know any. And none, no other, no other Samoans in the scene, huh? No, not around. Like, yeah, I'm sure, like out, like in California and stuff. Sure. Probably oh, a good thing. Here, I don't, no. I don't I mean, know that I'd want to be in a pit with with a bunch of Samoans. Because yeah, I'm like small Samoan too. That's what I always said I got adopted because I was too small. <laughs> Everyone else is a giant. Yeah, I, I've kind of noticed from your you, you don't you don't you don't appear to be the you know the stereotypical six foot two, six foot three, three hundred and fifty no. pound monster. Um, very right large now, human probably, beings. Well, I'm, yeah, they're huge. But I mean, even me, I'm five foot nine, probably like two forty five, and I've I think the Samoan things are always just big. Like I was never that tall, but I was always like people always thought I lifted weights all the Thick. time, and they were like, "Man, you're really strong." And, Sometimes I lift weights. Sometimes I go years. Yeah, well, it's you know, just naturally kind of bigger. <laughs> you know, for my listeners who may not understand what hardcore punk is, can you want you want to go back into? You could probably go back probably to the mid seventies and kind of give a little bit of a, a a history of where it came from and what musical styles spawned um, the scene and the sound. What's like? Let's think. Um, I mean, when punk, so punk started in, you know, you could say it started in either New York City or England, you know, like with bands like Ramones, Sex Pistols, but it was more rock oriented. Then when it came more to America, it was more heavy, was more like harder. So they called it hardcore punk. You know, my era, it was, I went to a hardcore and punk are kind of different though, the scenes. So my era, there was punk shows would be like, say your listeners would know like, you know, some band guys with mohawks and stuff when I first started going to shows. But then more of the hardcore scene was more metallic. So it was more metal and it was more, it was more violent. So I kind of gravitated more to the violent scene over the punk scene. Probably a little bit before your time, but you know, people, people around my age would remember uh, suicidal tendencies and, and oh, yeah, great. they were probably for, for, as far as I'm concerned, one of the first big, um, kind of appearances of of, punk, of hardcore punk in, in pop culture. And of course, again, people my age, you oh, know, the whole story about Mike Muir just wanting a, wanting a Pepsi and ending up in, in a, in a, yeah. in a, in a mental hospital. But um, I'm trying to think of other, not necessarily hardcore punk, but I mean, Sid and Nancy um, is another representation oh, yeah, sex, of, yeah, sex and stuff. Yeah. Of, of the scene in pop culture. And then I'd say, are you old enough to remember that movie SLC punk? Yeah. Okay, so and again, maybe not hardcore, but you know, I I grew up in um, you know, I didn't grow up in the in the hardcore. Didn't really get that interested in the hardcore until a couple of years ago, to be honest. Um, but going to shows when I was in college, uh, one of my two best friends, uh, Tom, he he like me lived at home, commuted to school. We were in college, and then we bounced in bars and nightclubs in Georgetown and D.C. and and um, you know, we met some friends there that were really into metal, and you know, we were more metal guys. And we went to. Are you familiar with the Nine Thirty Club? In D.C.? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, D.C. It's like a pretty famous spot. I don't think I've ever been there, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, we used to go see shows. I mean, I would see bands. That, we're talking in the mid mid to late 90s. Bands like uh, Coal Chamber, Seven Dust. Um, Anthra- yeah. I saw Anthrax and Life of Agony play together at the Bayou, which has now has been closed down many years now. But, um, you know, that Even was... Even like Life of Agony. Like, Life of Agony was like 90s hardcore metal. 
It goes from the hardcore scene. It went more towards metal people, but hardcore people still loved it too. And I tell you what, that so was a great a show, of that kind of stuff. and it was so funny. I I never I was never that into them, and I just every now and again I'll just start researching old bands that I used to listen to, and um, I it was so funny. I looked them up and I see a picture, and I'm like, oh, they have a female lead singer now. I'm like, when when when, when did they replace the lead singer? And I do a little bit more digging, I realize no, I don't indeed. remember their name, but they transitioned <laughs> like a dozen years ago. And as if nothing happened, yeah, the band just kept on, and it's wild, man. They still rock. Yeah, because I saw them tw- before when Keith was, you know, a male, and then he transitioned to a woman. I saw both. They were both cool. I um... were, uh... But it was just different. Like, seeing stuff now, like that band now, usually the clubs you see them at are lame. It's oh, really? Fun, so. Back, when I saw them before, it was like a war zone. And then recently, it wasn't. it was cool, but the place wasn't that cool. Well, I I want to you know I want I want your take. I mean, do you consider suicidal tendencies to be true hardcore? I mean, to me, suicidal is crossover. So crossover is just like when punk, punk hardcore kind of stuff crossed over into metal, like DRI stuff, like even Anthrax, you know, SOD that kind of stuff. So suicidal, you know, they started out pretty punk and then became more of a metal band. They actually crossover band. You know, now that I think of it, they almost were like a. a a look into the future of like the late nineties, new metal, like the, you know, the limp biscuits and corns and, you know, they oh, had yeah. a, well, they had a groove and everything too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were in a lot of ways pretty ahead of their time, but I actually saw them yeah. and I was never really into suicidal tendencies. I knew who they were. I actually saw them by chance twice in three days, uh, in 94, Really, they were on tour. So 94 was the year when they did that, um, uh, Woodstock 94. And there was this huge, and it was on a Saturday or on a Friday, Saturday, and there was a huge, huge rainstorm all up and down the East Coast. And it was raining cats and dogs up there. And then they I, I was to see Metallica was on that. And then they came down and joined their tour right. in Columbia, Maryland at Meriwether Post Pavilion with Suicidal Tendencies and Candlebox. Candlebox was a late replacement for Alice in Chains because Lane Staley was doing his rehab thing. Um, and long story short, my friend Wayne, had he had lawn tickets and I had a, you know, a pavilion ticket. And we were just kind of hanging out during suicidal set. He starts throwing mud up in the air like some idiot. And he comes up <laughs> with two armfuls of mud, and he's trying to hand some to me. I'm like, no, I don't want it. He, he gives some to me. I throw no, it up in the air. Of course, we get kicked out of the show. We got kicked out really? of the show. Um, we're trying to get our way back in. We're at the ticket office. The venue wouldn't let us back in. I still remember the guy's name. There was a guy in Metallica's production crew named Harold Coles. He heard he heard our pleas and he he was trying to get the venue to let us back in and they wouldn't. He goes, "Okay guys, if you drive down to Charlotte, North Carolina on Tuesday, I'll get you great seats and backstage passes." And um Dude, that is sweet. We we went to work Monday night at our bar that we worked at. Monday night was ladies night. We got off at 2 and we hit the road like true 20-year-olds like leaving at 2 in the morning on a road trip. And it was the greatest time. We ended up seeing suicidal twice in 3 days. But um <laughs> You know, I, when See, I really, that's awesome, but that, that's kind of like with hardcore and stuff, though, too. I mean, metal, too, but like hardcore people or punk people, they usually travel. So it's like you and your dudes get in the car, travel, hit some cool shows. It's like an adventure, you know what I mean? So It was definitely an adventure, but, time. you know, one of the things, so I started, like a lot of the cool-ass pages that I follow, you just kind of appeared your outcast mentality brand, where you get on and you, you talk for a minute and a half, two minutes about whatever somebody contacted you or wrote you an email about or or DM you some random stuff, some, <laughs> some random stuff. And, and that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I, I, I heard about you and I started following your page and I, you know, I follow your Simone Rob page. And, um, one thing Thanks, I man. found uh, around that time I had really started to see videos 
of how people mosh at hardcore shows. And yeah. let's just say not my not my thing. Um, you know, we, we did metal. No. I'm a metalhead. <laughs> I'm a thrash metal guy. Yeah. Um, you know, in our scene, you know, when I, I'm air quoting our scene in, in D.C. And the, and the thrash metal shows and uh, some of the new metal stuff that, that, that came around, like Cold Chamber and, and, and Corn, you know, it was not quite a circle pit. Uh, not quite a push pit. It was kind of a mixture of both. And there was an yeah, understanding. Kind of and, and everybody kind of understood, you know, you can move your arms and move your body, but the arms never got above shoulder level. And Yeah, yeah, 100%. That is not the hardcore pit. There, no, were, no, there were no spin kicks. No. Hardcore pit is just, just like doing martial arts in a small room with a bunch of people. And then whatever happens, happens. Yeah, and, um, and it's kind of why I like different things. Like I like different kinds of pits because, like, just hardcore pits are to me get a little old, you know. But I, you know, I like circle pits and stuff too. But yeah, you know, that's I. I try to be uh, kind of respectful and say, you know, when I look at it, I'm like, man, I'll just say that doesn't look like something because you understand, you go into a pit, you're, you're going to be sore the next day. That's why I oh, don't yeah. go to concerts anymore. I just I got it all out of my system. I don't have the energy for it, but. That's like you're you're really risking getting teeth kicked in and get getting really hurt as as you've talked about on your page. I remember. Yeah, if you're not about that life, don't it's go. Just not for you, you know. No, and you I know mean, what? You can you can stand in the. It just depends because even that, like, good example, the, the bar that me and my friend own. She hates hardcore shows. She doesn't hate hardcore music. It's just she hates the shows because she's like, this is stupid. You know, meaning the pits because they're crazy. I like it because I like total chaos but not all the time. I just think it's the time and place. Like, I think for brutal stuff where people are going nuts, yeah. But, you know, if it's a lighter band or even, like, more of a punk band, I think you shouldn't be doing that stuff, you know? Yeah. I just you, think there's etiquette to each, each type of scene you're in. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually pretty lucky, and I know I've, I've been sore. You know, you get sore the next morning, and, you know, there were two things when I was that age. I knew there were two things that were going to happen when I went to a show. I was going to get completely loaded, and I was going to be in the pit all yeah. <laughs> And there used yeah. to be a club... It's actually right about where I think the the Washington Nationals baseball stadium is. We used to go to shows at this place called the Capitol Ballroom. It was at Half and K Street yeah, Southeast. Ballroom, yeah. Yeah, and I saw I, a sh- talking about too. I saw I saw Stuck Mojo there once. They were actually really good. Um but the first show I ever went to there was Biohazard and Pantera. And during See, Bio- I love Biohazard. During Biohazard set, I took an elbow to the nose. I don't know how I went to the bathroom to see how fucked up it was. I I just I'm gonna get bleeped because I don't curse on my show, but I forgot. Um, I I went to the bathroom to look in the mirror to see how messed up my nose was, and lo and behold, I wasn't bleeding and it wasn't broken. But man, when when they say you see stars, I literally saw stars. I mean, it was oh my god, it hurt so bad. But um, of course, oh yeah, I saw that it was fine when I was a. Go ahead. Yeah, I saw Biohazard when I was a teenager. It was one of the first. The first time I saw him, I was maybe 16, and I remember I started moshing, and these skinhead dudes punched me in the face and stuff, but it was just me and my friend who was just kind of like a dorky guy. But yeah, I saw, I think it was Sepultura and Biohazard. I remember that tour, too, but Pantera and Biohazard. I tried to go to it in Pittsburgh. It was Sepultura, Biohazard, Pantera, but my mom would have had to drive me, and she just, you know, she was like an old lady. She's just going to let, like, sit in the car all day, so I'm always bummed I missed that show. Yeah, I um, that was the first time I saw Pantera three times. That was the first time, and then I saw him play at Nissan Pavilion, which has changed names a couple of times. It's in Manassas, Virginia, but um, they played with it was either White Zombie or Rob Zombie. I forget who he, how he was touring oh, at yeah. the time, 
But if you've ever seen Rob Zombie or White Zombie, he's got a big screen in back that plays like old B, like black and white horror films. Yeah. It's part of his shtick, right? Well, during his set, yeah. this nasty, nasty thunderstorm rolled through. And so it was like extra special effects. I mean, just lightning and thunder and rain going yeah. sideways. And that was a wild-ass pit. And then, of course, I, the last time I saw Pantera was at Lollapalooza in 97. It was actually at the same venue. But I want to talk about you. One of the things I really dig about your outcast mentality brand page is you talk about a lot of the things in the hardcore scene that for someone like me who's never been a part of it and I don't go to shows, I wouldn't know. Can you talk about what crowd killing is and what part that plays in the whole moshing and, and the hardcore scene? So crowd killing, now that it's more popular, back in the day it was a thing where, okay, so say you're moving in the pit, you know, for people at home this might be totally confusing, but so usually it's like the band's playing, you're looking at the band doing karate kicks or whatever, windmills, that kind of stuff. But you're not really hit, like you might hit someone standing on the side, but you're not really aiming for them. Crowd killing is kind of the opposite where you actually are aiming. You might not be aiming, you might be aiming in a general direction, but you're definitely aiming for the people standing around as opposed to they happen to just get hit. And crowd killing was when I was young, this is like, probably like almost 20 years ago now, at least 15 years ago. It wasn't really a thing most places. And it started getting popular in underground hardcore. Like the root, like the most violent bands people would crowd kill at, you know, it was like the most violent fans and most violent bands. And then nowadays, because of the internet, you know, people dig up these old videos or you see some kid doing it on TikTok. That's what made it become like, you'll see it at normal shows or like a bigger show, which never would have happened back in the day. Now you talked about that. You it, it'd be like, if you're standing on the side, yeah. Like if you're standing on the side, I'd run up and hit you. So like I said, that back in the day you did that, but you had to know depending where you're at. I mean, it was an automatic fight. You know, it was just uh that's why it was like kind of like a dangerous mosh move to do. Yeah. And you know, you, you talked, you talked about that and you had talked about how some of what you talked about, how it used to just be really underground, and then the internet happened, and people started seeing it, started emulating yeah, it. Became right. it became a little bit too mainstream, and that seems to be uh, at least in your view of or your your little corner of the of the hardcore community. Um, it, it's not it's it's only cool until it becomes common. Um, yeah, it's I, just weak. I, it's kind of, here's the, here's what I would explain crowd killing because you train right. Yeah, are, are you. I was looking on your Instagram stuff, so you you understand fighting and all that stuff. You train and stuff, so it's kind of like you're sparring with a guy. It's like a new kid comes to the gym and he spars way too hard. You know what I mean? It's like he's usually either going to get tuned up or someone's going to have a talk with him, you know, one or the other. But your brown belt you is know, usually the enforcer, like, right? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? But it's like like if I spar at my gym, just say I'm kickboxing or something, and a guy comes in, you know, I'm cool, I go light. He goes hard. It's like, okay, I'm either going to be like, yo, you got to calm down or I'm going to have to level you, you know, like one or the other. Just gym, gym kind of stuff. Right. That's kind of like how hardcore was. Like, if you came in, so me and you are at a show, and we're going wild. If we don't have the respect of the other people in the room, we might get beaten half to death. You know, because usually in hardcore circles, the shows, everyone kind of knows each other. So if you don't have that respect of that room, you don't get to come in, you know, just like at a gym. You don't get to come in and start, you know, yoking somebody up unless you're going to get respect. Or the enforcer got to come out there. Right. So the difference is now it's like everybody is that new person everybody's the guy who just, you know, got his six weeks of training in and now he's going to go hard with everybody. And that's why it's just not as, but, not as cool. But, but aside from, you know, crowd killing, just in general, it seems to me like the hardcore scene prides itself on being non-commercial. 
and that when things get too big, it's not really hardcore anymore. It's not it's not truly part of the scene. I know that um, yeah. a lot of the pop punk bands in the 90s, I think it was either Blink-182 or, um, oh, shit, what's the other? Green Day kind of got shit from, from their respective scenes when they got signed to a label and started doing videos on MTV. Is that kind of, is that, that the kind of thing? hundred percent. Okay. It's more the kids too. Cause the bands at this point, yeah. And hardcore, it's always been the same thing. If you, you're selling out, even in punk, like you make money, you sell out. And when I was young, I thought the same thing. Then you get older and it's like, well, once you're past a certain age, like you got to pay bills. Like you can't go on the road and like, you know, just playing a band for free. Like right. you got to pay your bills, whatever. So, uh, but at hardcore still is like any band gets to a certain height and everyone's like, oh, they sold out. And it's like, well, what do you want them to do? You know, you got to feed your family. <laughs> right. So it's kind of like a dumb, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Like I'm, you want to stay underground, then you make it out of it, and then everyone hates you for it. You can't win, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's like, how do you win? So you just stay broke forever? You know, you become successful and people hate you. Yeah. Do you listen to any other genres of music? Yeah, I listen to a lot of stuff. Mostly I listen to, I don't know, I listen to a lot of like just normal punk music, indie kind of music. Yeah. Some I, rap. I don't know a ton of rap. My kids are like, listen to a lot of hip hop stuff. So yeah. they tell me stuff. I, I was just talking to, uh, I was talking to my producer on the way in and we were talking about, uh, are you familiar with the artist Jelly Roll? Yeah. I Is would like a not, country rapper guy? Yeah, and I was just telling him that, you know, he exactly who he is 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 the kind of artist that I hated for a lot of years. And I just happened to watch him. We could talk all day about how and why we get exposed to the music we do. And streaming is beautiful, but at the same time, it's almost too focused because you create a Pandora station and it knows what you like. Um, but you don't oh, hear, course. you don't get that's that. That's all you're going to listen to, yeah. Yeah, but so so I saw, I saw Jelly Roll... Um, Take, you know, accept an award on the Country Music Awards like a month ago. And I was like, yeah, let me check this guy out. I, I've downloaded two of his two of his albums now. I actually had an unintentional uh, drinking incident last night. Um, I, I knew I had stuff to do today. I'm off Mondays, but I knew I had stuff to do all day today. And damn it, if I didn't start drinking vodka and listening to Jelly Roll, and it turned into an ugly mess. <laughs> um, because he sings hey, a lot of stuff. <laughs> he sings about a lot of stuff that's real close to my heart and a lot of down and out people, yeah. and you know, I don't know if you know what I my, my main job. Of course, the podcasting. I'm a commissioner with the state athletic commission, so we run all the state, all the boxing and MMA. But my real job is I'm I'm a sheriff's detective, and the 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 yeah, down and, right. you know the down and out people that he talks about are people I deal with every day, and you, you have to walk that line between, you know, telling a mom straight up you are screwing your kids up for life with your behavior, but also trying to be compassionate and understand why she is the way she is and the why her life turned out. And so, man, that just, that was a bad, a bad combination, vodka and jelly roll. That's all I'm going to say. But where I was going with this was, you know, you have what you would call like a crossover or a, a, a hybrid artist like that. Cause he, you know, he crosses over with the, the Southern rock slash country with, with the hip hop. Um, are you, is the hardcore scene, are there bands that are that have obvious influences outside hardcore and metal and punk? Um, I think so. But I think hardcore is the most pigeonholed kind of like genre. Because with mo the biggest thing with most hardcore bands is moshing. <laughs> and usually that's karate kind of stuff. So you're waiting for the breakdown. So like Life of Agony, good example. A lot of breakdowns, real heavy parts. It's great for moshing. So hardcore, what happens is you, you, write, you might write a great song, but if you don't have that big mosh part, Nobody cares when you play it live. So I think people get stuck in writing really formulaic songs. 
I mean, it's anything. It's thr- it's suicidal tendencies, slay or whatever. You know, they're going to play really fast. It just is what it is. So, I think that's the one problem with hardcore stuff. You know, which I get it because it almost becomes like dance, like club dance music. People are waiting for that beat to hit. Right. So hardcore shows, you're waiting for that breakdown to hit. You know, because that's when you move. A lot of times, the fast parts of the hardcore show, people just stand there. It's not till the breakdown hits. You know, I um, that they're really good stuff. W- one of the things that has always been problematic, probably one of the reasons I've never enjoyed hardcore that much, is I, I like things that are more melodic. And this doesn't doesn't yeah, seem to be a like whole that. lot of melody. Um, although no. I, I I will say, um, so I there was a store actually in Georgetown, a couple doors down from this place I worked for a couple of years. It was called Smash, and it was like a punk hardcore shop. And I walked in. I'm I'm like 21 years old. I'm walking to work one day, and actually I had moved. I had ended up working at this place where I worked for like the last year and a half before I moved to New Mexico. I wore a jacket and a tie. Just to, to bounce and never had to put my hands on anybody. It was they paid me well, but I walk in a jacket and tie. I'm like, I'm going to check this place out. And I and I kid you not, I just saw um, an Agnostic Front cassette, and I was like, that looks like a cool type name of a band. So I bought the yeah. cassette, and I and that <laughs> yeah. honestly was my first, other than uh, Sick of It All, was my first real introduction to real band. hardcore. And I, yeah. a, couple, a couple of years ago, probably about two or three years ago, right around the time I started following you, um, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to start kind of feeling my way around the hardcore again. And, and I, 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 I downloaded, uh, Agnostic Fronts, uh, uh, some playlist, you know, the greatest hits or something like that. And then I created a Pandora station and I actually found some really cool bands. I'm sure you're familiar with a band from Boston called Blood for Blood. Yeah, hundred percent. I rock out to them all the time. Blood for Blood. Uh, Blood for Blood, Sick of It All, Agnostic Front. I saw them a million times. Um, all great bands. Some of my favorite bands of all time. And the thing is, this is kind of what you're, I think you're getting at, too, with the Jelly Roll stuff. I think the reason why people appreciated Jelly Roll is reality. So it's kind of like why I always loved hardcore. A lot of, a lot of music, like I like heavy metal, too, but it, a lot of it's fantasy. They're just thinking about demons and stuff. You know, obviously, it's not real. That's fine. Hardcore, to me, was like kind of like the dark side of reality. You know, the darker areas, like a grittier stuff, but it was real. So to me, I think that's why people appreciate like Jelly Roll. He talks about real stuff, and he's a real guy. It's not just a fantasy. So that's kind of why I always was more into hardcore over anything else. It's just I like reality stuff. And, like, I live the rough life in certain times, so, you know, you you know, you think about that kind of stuff. It's, yeah. You know, it, it identif- I identify with that kind of stuff. You know, my sister-in-law, I just turned her on to him, and uh, she's been in, in, in music business and broadcasting for a long time. She hadn't heard of him, and then she sent me back. There's actually a five-minute video of him testifying before a Senate committee on fentanyl. It, it's, I mean, it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have you seen it? I know exactly what you're talking about, yeah. Oh, my God, that is amazing. I mean, he is unbelievably articulate, and intelligent. and you're right. He speaks. He says, look, I was a dealer. I mean, he speaks from such such a real such a real place. Um, now, like I said, I, this is one of the problems with bands, even hardcore bands. It's like modern hardcore. That's another thing that's different with modern hardcore. Back in the day, whatever you were lived, that's usually what you're going to sing about. So you could have just been some dude from the suburbs. What it didn't matter, but you sang about your reality. And now people, everyone, you know, hardcore bands just talk about killing. And all, they're not doing any of that. It just became like heavy metal lyrics, you know. And even I'm sure with with country or rap. A lot of these people are not living those lives. That's fine. It's just I prefer stuff that's reality-based. You know, I think that's how an artist really is going to speak from what he actually did, not from what he just saw on TV. Well, I think the same thing happened with hip-hop. I mean, that's... Uh... 
Yeah, I mean, I have to do they ain't doing nothing. No, no. So I, I do want to move on. There are a couple of things about the hardcore scene I do want to talk about. How did, how is it that Straight Edge is such a, I don't want to say a big part because I don't know that it is, but it's, it is a definitely embedded in the hardcore scene. And maybe for my listeners, explain uh, what Straight it's, Edge it's is. It's growing again. Well, Straight Edge started in the 80s, of course, with, you know, Ian from Minor Threat. They had the song Straight Edge. And back then, I mean, the song was, you know, about you don't drink, you don't do drugs, you don't have sex. And it didn't mean you didn't have sex. It just meant, like, you weren't pursuing that kind of stuff all the time, you know. Basically, it was like, you're not going to spend your life in pursuit of drinking and partying and that kind of stuff. So then it became a thing where just people were like, well, I'm straight edge. And if you claim that, that meant you didn't drink or do drugs. And you usually weren't having promiscuous sex. That's usually what they would say. So, yeah, where I came from, a lot of guys were straight edge. But I was from a different era. Because in the 80s, it was more like punk guys with their heads shaved with X's. My era was more the 90s where a lot of guys were very physical straight edge guys. They would call it like militant straight edge. A lot of guys were bigger guys, tattoos, worked out a lot, didn't drink or do drugs, did not put up with that kind of stuff. Not meaning like they didn't care if people drank, but like a lot of fights at shows over, you know, people blowing smoke in their face or spilling beer on them and that kind of stuff. And now, and it kind of died out, but I think it's coming back now. Yeah, it sounds to me, it it seems to me like it almost became, it it became, it, it grew out of some sort of righteousness but then became a little bit self-righteous and intolerant. And oh, I've actually, I've actually read, exactly what you know, beyond, beyond the not drinking, not smoking, and not pursuing promiscuous sex, I know that there were some who were like vegetarians, which I find interesting. And one thing I, don't, one thing I, I do every day of my life, but I don't do on the show, is I don't talk politics. But I found it very interesting that some of these things, you would, you would associate, you know, one would associate the, the no drinking and no drugs and no promiscuous sex with a very right-of-center, you know, worldview. And then you've got the the uh, respecting women and women's rights and vegetarianism and veganism, all that stuff was kind of on the left. It, I thought it was kind of interesting because it, it covers all kind of all ends of the ideological spectrum. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Cause it was also in the nineties, you had bands like earth crisis and stuff that were vegan straight edge. So then they were a different, you know, they were like, well, we're vegan too. They're still vegan, which is cool. Cause they're still are vegan straight edge. So yeah, I was never V. Ve- I mean, I've, uh, I go for weird periods of time where I don't eat meat. So, like, I might go six months not eating any meat, then I eat meat. I was never vegan for, like, a crazy amount of time, but those dudes still are. But I technically am still straight edge because I don't drink or do drugs or anything like that. Okay, well. But um, I don't really, I feel like rules to me are just I'm not great with. So, even just putting a rule set on me, I don't want, you know. That's true hardcore, man. Even if that's what I'm going to do anyways. Yeah, you know (laughs) what I mean? It's just, like, rules. It's just not for me. You know, discipline uh, is different than just having rules you have to, you know, live by. Well, taking taking straight edge to another level, I was actually watching, and I, I would love to see if you agree with this uh, uh, of it being labeled as such. But there was a show that was on, I think, Vice TV that was called Gangland, and they would profile street gangs. And they did an episode on FSU, Friends Stand United. Yes. Can you talk about that? Um, I mean, those guys are a crew. I mean, I'm in a crew. They're in a crew. I'll, I will say this. I don't want to get crazy, you know, but crews and hardcore were also a huge thing. A lot of crews did not get along. The crew that I'm in definitely did not get along with many people. Things change. You get older and you think that's kind of dumb. But, um, yeah, like FSU, big crew out of Boston. I think the original members were straight edge. And then, I mean, I don't know if they are anymore. But, I mean, hardcore crews, it's kind of like in any business or any, like, scene there's certain people who run stuff and the hardcore scene up until this day 
crews still run a lot of what goes on. And a crew, I don't want to say it's a gang or anything, because I wouldn't call it that. Like, they were on gangland, which didn't help them any. But um, even FSU is a huge crew to this day that runs a lot of the bigger shows and stuff. Like, they have a hand in all that kind of stuff. Okay. I didn't. I, I had never heard of them until I saw that. Apparently, the FBI uh, delegated them, or, or, or I don't know what the, the, the verbiage is I'm looking for. They, they labeled them a gang. At this point, I don't, neither here yeah. nor there. It doesn't bother me. I'm not part of that scene. It doesn't. Doesn't mean anything yeah. to me. You you did make. I, I do want to go back to some of the, one of the interesting things I learned from you. And you actually just did a post, I think, about this about playing a venue in Texas. And if I'm not wrong, it sounds to me like when it, we're talking about things like crowd killing and what is accepted in your scene and what is what is not. Um, a lot of times, the clubs themselves will dictate. This is what we allow. This is what our security allows. This is how they're going to operate. And the scene yes. itself kind of adapts to that. Am I on the right track? Yes. Yeah, hundred percent. Like usually, you got to me. It's like you got you should work with a venue. So I mean, you you know, you're a commissioner and stuff. So you get it. Like there's venues, there's policies that have to be. So some places you can get away with stuff. Some places you can't. So like at the bar that me and my friend take care of, like hardcore shows, we're like, hey, you can come get wild, but you got to be cool. And if you're not into that, you should not come to the show. You know. So that whoever's promoting, if it's not us, you know, we make sure everything is, we're all on the same page. And even people there, well, like, if you don't like it, you should go because this isn't for you, you know. But other bars, they have heavy security, which is fine. But you shouldn't book shows that are going to have a wild crowd. Because, I mean, even you, you're, you know, you used to mosh. It'd be like if you book a club and you can't mosh to, like, a band. It's like, well, why did you book a band that, you know, that's what happens. Right. Just don't book them then. Yeah. Can you talk a little I, bit also about how – for some reason, Nazi skinheads uh, kind of, ad- I don't want to say adopted the scene, but they, they made their presence and tried to, how damaging to the hardcore scene was, because for a lot of people in the 80s, people associated hardcore punk with Nazi skinheads, and they didn't know the difference between the yeah, Sharps like the and, the, and, and the Nazi skinheads and what color shoelaces you wore and things like that. Um, what's your take on all that? Let's see. Let's see. So when I was young, there'd be Nazis. Uh, more, okay, so more in PA. Ohio? There's sketch balls on the other side of Ohio. Where we're from, there's sketch balls, but they're not Nazis. You know, they're just normal sketch balls. So, <laughs> and PA always had weird Nazis for some reason. And the thing is, too, you know how this is because you've been around. People will call anything a Nazi now. When I'm talking about Nazis, I'm talking about a guy with a swastika tattooed on his head, and he's like seven foot tall, straight out of prison. Like, that's like the Nazis we had to deal with. Like lunatic meth guys. And you've got some pretty cool merch. So, let's, talk, let's talk about the Outcast Mentality brand then. You have a... yeah, so that was basically it. We a lot of people post stuff about how they hate Nazis and this. Like I said, whatever. But you know, there was a lot of fights with Nazis back in the day, basically just keeping them out. So like even in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, those type of people do not come to shows. It doesn't happen. And if they do, there's always a major problem. And a lot of other places they let that happen. And you know, it's just it's just not like that here. So we always took pride in being like, hey, anyone can come here. You know, whatever you want to be. I don't care what whatever your politics are, but. It's, if you're going to be like wearing swastikas and shit, it's not going to happen. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I swore. But no, I, I think certain words are okay. I dropped an f bomb, and I, you yeah. know, I, I actually did an interview with a buddy of mine, Hoser, who's a big metalhead, and um, I asked him where were the most inappropriate place was he ever yelled f and Slayer, and I said the word, and then and then he said it back, and, I, and my producer bleeped me and not him, which I couldn't understand. And she said, well, he said it so fast you couldn't understand what he was saying. But, you know, no. Yeah, I, I was like, I didn't know if we could swear. So I was like, I'm not going to swear unless, you know, 
yeah, I no, a lot on the thing, but I, I try I'm to respectful of you know whatever I'm working with. No, I, what I tell people is there are two things I do every minute of every day in my life. I curse like a sailor and I talk politics. And there's two things I never ever yeah. do on my show, and that, that's I don't curse and I don't talk politics. Um, and the politics, the politics thing is, I, I I believe in one way, and I just don't want to cut out half my possible listeners. And the other thing is, you know, my my 82 year old father listens to my show, and out of respect for him and and my aunts and uncles who are in that age range, I I figured, you know, for 45 minutes, I can I can refrain from yeah, sure. from doing that. But uh, I do want to move on because oh, yeah. I I know you're you're probably running short on time because you got I know you got to get to work. Oh, I'm good. Whatever. Yeah, whatever. A couple more things I do want to talk about. Um, martial arts. How did you get into it? What's your style? I know I know you roll. It looks like you do mostly no gi, um, and you do some some kickboxing sparring. Did, tell me all about that. Um, so when I was young, I would always train with friends who were fighters. Then when I hit my twenties, like I, I have a lot of friends. We were kind of always the same guys. We we're guys that just work an insane amount. And, you know, you're older, too, so you get, like, how gyms were so many years ago. It was, like, it just some guy's garage. So, like, me and my friends would just train with guys and do karate and stuff. Then in my 20s, I started doing kickboxing at gyms and doing jiu-jitsu. I stopped for a while, and then I would train off and on, and now I've been training at the same place, this place Leverage, in Cortland, Ohio. I've been doing jiu-jitsu for the last straight for the last five years, and I'm back to kickboxing when I can, too. Do you uh, and my son trains with me too, so it's a lot of fun. How many days a week? At this point, probably two to three if I can. Yeah, and that's safe. That... Six or seven days a week. Yeah, I pretty much like I'm at the tattoo shop four or five days a week, and then my other days I do outcast mentality and other stuff in the bar if I can go up there. So I pretty much work six or seven days a week, but I'll set aside at least two to three mornings I can make it there. You got a ton of stuff going on, so you know my my history with that is I grew up playing football and wrestling and. Uh, and then, you know, I, 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 you know, when I was in college in the nineties, if you were bigger and stronger than most people, you could, you had no problem. You could be a bouncer anywhere. Now it's different. And oh, so, yeah, back old school, yeah. you know, I was, I was, I'm only six feet tall, but back then I was 270 pounds at a 19 inch neck. I mean, you know, and all the guys who That's worked with me are a big dude, man. You've been fun. Pretty big. So I trained, um, I trained at a Hopkito school for a little while. Um, and, th- and that was fun, but in all honesty, that was you know, I watched my first UFC on July fourth, nineteen ninety four. We're at my buddy Matt's house. Our friend Jimmy shows up with these these VHS tapes from from Blockbuster. He's like, "Hey guys, I found this Ultimate Fighting Challenge or some shit," and we were all hooked from that <laughs> point on. And and you know, one of the reasons I was training at this Hopkido school is because I had some friends who were there, and the uh, uh, the guy whose school it was, Grandmaster Kim, was one of the only like tenth degree grandmasters in the world. And, you know, you don't get a chance to train with somebody like that. But that was in 1995. I'd been watching you. Know, UFC is just getting started. And this is a very traditional striking martial art. I, I wanted to yeah. spar. I didn't want to do forms and and kicking no. 6,000, you know. So I stopped doing that. And no, then I agree. I actually got a chance to finally start doing jujitsu in 2017. Uh, trained for a year and a half. I made a decision to do my first comp. I, I, I was going to register for Naga. And then my professor promoted me before I had a chance to register, so now I had to go in as a, as a zero-stripe blue belt. Long story, I, <laughs> I, I tore up my knee and locked up in the middle of a match. I had surgery. I had a blood clot. Then the pandemic happened. Oh, man. And then I started boxing. And then um, this is when I knew I was done doing jiu-jitsu. About a month after I started boxing, two, almost two years ago to the day, uh, one of my friends, one of the professors at, at our school started, like he has his own kind of side dojo 
where upper belt guys go and just kind of roll before class, then they roll over to the regular yeah. school. I went and I rolled three rounds at his school, and I did not feel anything happen. But for a week after that, my good knee clicked every time I took a step. And I had just turned 48. Well, yeah. This is two years ago. I That's just turned 48. Thing. And I just, you know, I said to myself, and I'm, I'm in the best shape of my life. I want to be in this kind of shape, yeah, shape, man, in, great shape. in 10 years. And if I keep rolling, that's not going to happen. So at this point in my life, well, it's, see that, it's healthier to get punched. I in agree the, with you hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, I tore my, I think I, I tore my bicep a couple months ago. My son actually did in an arm bar. And then I went to a show and I thought it was healed. And I started moshing toward again. And then I went to Texas while my arm was healing. And I tried to mosh and I broke my toe. And then I'm going to the gym and dudes are body slamming me. And I'm like, my girlfriend's like, what are you doing, man? Like, are you trying to prove you're 20 years old or something? <laughs> yeah. you, you can't, like, It's like you, same thing. You can't in your do, mind, you're like, dude, I'm fine. I can do this. Until your body's like, yo, and I, slow down. <laughs> no, and I'm, and I'm with you. I actually, I haven't sparred in almost a year because surprise, surprise, there are no other 50 year old guys at the gym. So I'm sparring with a with a 20 year old who's a hell of an athlete and a skilled boxer. You know he's long and he's a boxing southpaw. To me, and he caught to me boxing. The sparring is way harder. Than oh yeah, like, it is. And I got caught boxing with an, like MMA sparring is caught down. Yeah, yeah. I, I I caught an uppercut to the nose, and right where it like it hurts your teeth and your nose. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't. I don't know if I should be doing this. I haven't sparred in almost a year. My wife is happy about if it. If I ever met you, we could spar a light. Yeah, I'm a light spar guy. Well, that's well, good. In my gym, like, there's two dudes, some younger kids that have been fighting, and they've won their last few matches by knockout. And they, they're they both, like, they don't spar crazy hard. My coach is a cool dude. He's younger, too, and he kind of learned different. Because when I first started kickboxing and stuff, it was called who's tougher. You know what I mean? Like, back in the day, it's like who's the hardest guy here? It's like bite down in your mouthpiece and just smash people. Then nowadays they're like, well, maybe you shouldn't do that, you know. Like, no, you move around. You definitely shouldn't. But I, I'm, I'm so sure tough. that I'm sure that you understand this. And I always tell people one of the first things that you learn training in jujitsu is how to is, is, is to be humble because you get humble. Oh yeah. And actually, one of you one get of humble quick. <laughs> one of the one of the athletes that I sponsor is uh, my friend Dakota uh, at Chokes You Out BJJ. Um, he, I'll check uh, it out. He was. Uh, he was, he's the first time I rolled with him and I'm brand, I mean, I'm 230 pounds, right? And he's probably 150 pounds and strangles me within 15 seconds. Right. And, and I'm a guy, like I said, I'm a big, strong guy. I've been a nightclub bouncer. I've been a cop for 25 years. Like I've trained, I've done a little bit. I'm certainly not, you know, going hands on with people is not something. Yeah, that's, you're not a, you're not a pushover. It's, no. it's not foreign to me, but when somebody who weighs almost a hundred pounds less than you strangles you in 15 seconds, you get humbled. And I think as oh, guys, yeah. As guys, we, we're always sizing other guys up. We're like, hey, I can take that guy. Or I think I can take him. No, you can't. You don't know because you don't know what, he's, what, he, what kind of stuff he knows. No. And the, the, time, the amount of time I spend around professional fighters, you know, boxers oh, and, yeah. and MMA fighters, totally I'm, I, I spend all kinds of time in rooms with people who can kill me without even thinking about it. So that, you know, if I wasn't oh, already yeah. humbled, <laughs> that's, that's humbling enough. Um, tattoos. I want to talk real quick no, about I tattoos. Rob, yeah. I, I got my first tattoo October, like four years ago. I was about to turn 46. And I now have 11. Um, <laughs> I, oh, nice. They're, they're all on my arms. But um, you, you have some interesting, I mean, let's put it this way. At what point do you, do you say, screw it, I'm getting tattoos on the face and, and on the top of my head? And 
when when you do, um, I did when I was in my mid twenties, so maybe like fifteen years ago, I got my face my first face tattoo. I was already pretty covered. Yeah, you know, because I started working, like I said, when I was eighteen at a shop. I was in ninety nine, and all the guys I worked with were more were all street people, and that's kind of what I came up around too. Where it was like, it wasn't that you weren't going to have a life, but the first guys I worked with were like, listen. If you're really down, because back then tattooing was like an outlaw thing or piercing, any of that kind of stuff. It's like if you're like us, you're down. You don't care. You'll get whatever because you're never working in an office. You're never going to be normal. Because back then you were like a lunatic if you were like really heavily tattooed. So that was just it. I was like, dude, I'm down. You know, I'm, I'm living it. Luckily, it worked out for me. It, it yeah. did, and I'm, and I'm glad it did. I mean, the businesses that you're in would definitely allow for that. But I have to imagine, you know, when, yeah. you, when you do, when you cross that line and you get that face tattoo or that, that tattoo on your head, you, you've kind of decided, you, this is it, I'm not, ever, you're right, I'm not going to work in a, I'm not, probably not, never going to work in an office, um, you know. Yeah, you just say you don't care, especially back then, because it was really crazy if you had tattoos on your head and your hands. Yeah, I, um, I have to um, tell you, I've kind of lucked out, you know. Good. You know, it was tattoos up until just a few years ago. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't have visible tattoos as a cop in most places. And now it, and it's different. Yeah, that's and, what um, I thought. And, and um, yeah, the beards, everybody's got a beard now. Everybody's got tattoos. But um, I got to give a shout out while we're talking about it. At Keith Las Cruces, Camino Tattoo Studio. I used to run an ad for him a couple of seasons ago. Great guy. Um, he's done a lot for my, just the art he's put on me has, has done a lot for my, my self-image. Yeah. Um, Hey, anyway, you had you did one thing I would do want to talk about. You had a recent trip to Disney World. Yeah, my girlfriend goes to Disney World every other month. Actually, I got to go there in a couple of weeks. So she goes <laughs> go there, there every other now. month. Yeah, just in the last like two years, she's like, I really want to go to Disney World. So she she runs like they have half marathons. She runs the half marathons. So we were there like in October. She was there in December. She went to California last month. We're going back to Disney World. It's ridiculous. We don't really do – it's because we we work so much. Like, I just won't even take a day off for weeks. So then it's like, okay, we can leave for three or four days. That's – you know, that's like awesome. I, said, I work at the shop. Yeah, we just – so she's the same. She'll work six <laughs> days at the shop, and then the seventh day she'll be doing other stuff. Yeah. So then I, she's like, well, we work, you know, 20-some days in a row. We'll take a couple days and go to Disney World. I've been to Disney World seven or eight times. I was actually at Disneyland in California during the L.A. riots in 1992. That was wild. Um, wow. <laughs> but, you know, what I always tell people is my wife and I, uh, 22 years ago, this past October, we took our honeymoon there. And what I always tell people is don't ever, ever, ever underestimate the quality of an adults-only Disney vacation. It could be just as magical. I mean, it was oh, awesome. It. But we now have kids, a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and they've, we've been there twice with them. I can't for the life of me imagine going. Um, with <laughs> without yeah. kids, without the kids now. But yeah, um, my kids are old. Hey, Rob, before we go, do you want to just you want to give up? You want to tell everybody about your pages and and where they can get your merch? Outcast Mentality Brand and and Facebook and Instagram and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, there's Outcast Mentality Brand Instagram. You can check out. And there's I don't know. There's like a big cartel or something that I use. Check that out. But I will say this about Outcast Mentality. It was one of those things I did for fun years ago. And it kept going. And I tried to let it die out, and it kept coming back. And then even recently, why I've been doing more videos, I didn't want to do it anymore because I'm not a really social media guy. But all my friends are like, oh, people, just do it. So it is what it is. It's cool. I can help people out, and people like the stuff. So It's, it's working for out. you. I've, I've been meaning to get on some of that merch. Um, anyway, I'll, do, lady, I'll send you some. I'll send you some. Don't worry about it. Good deal, good deal. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, um, I've had a hell of a lot of fun these last 50 minutes or so talking to Samoan Rob. 
Uh, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. As you guys know, we don't do seasons anymore, but I try to drop an episode every month for us. Uh, we're Square Peg Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. We'll see you guys next time. Rob, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate it.